Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by my coworker, Julia Dazelski. Julia, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for welcoming on the show today. Today, Julia is uh, stopping by to chat with us about the upcoming World Meeting of Families that is going to be taking place right after this episode comes out. So if you're listening to it the day it comes out, we'll be hopping on a plane to Rome pretty soon. Otherwise, we are already there. (laughs) (laughs) by the time you're hearing this. And uh, leading our delegation and organizing pretty much everything, uh, my coworker, Julia, who's the uh, USCCB's Assistant Director for Marriage and Family Life in our office for Lady Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Julia, you've been planning this trip for a while, right? Yes, but you know, it kind of came as a surprise because although we were planning to send USCCB staff to the World Meeting of Families, which of course has been planned for some time, and it was delayed due to COVID. We did not anticipate sending a delegation, however. So that came as a surprise. And we had about six months, I think, from when we heard that a delegation was being requested by the Diocese of Rome to now to prepare that delegation. And and so, of course, that was also a result of this World Meeting of Families being a little different than most. And that's primarily because of the pandemic. Exactly. And so when they decided that this World Meeting of Families would be, as they're calling it, kind of a multi-centric event, that's the English term that they're using. I'm not exactly sure what the Italian term is that they're trying to translate there. But anyway, it's meant to be more focused in Rome, but also celebrated throughout the world in the local dioceses. And so given the parameters of the actual location in Rome, in the Vatican City, indoors being the auditorium of Paul VI, Aula Paolo VI, they really had to limit the number of participants. So they're asking every Episcopal conference to send a delegation. And that delegation number, the number of participants per delegation, was based on the size of the Episcopal conference. How many bishops, how many dioceses, how many Catholics, that kind of thing. Yeah, so they did their they did their number crunching and figured out a way to get everybody there, but only the number that would make it feasibly possible. So how many do we have going? So, uh, I was I was on the Zoom call, but I didn't count how many were in the American delegation. Our delegation is pretty uh, good sized. We will have approximately 60 individuals with 60, us. 60, okay. 60 people, right. That will consist of 15 couples or families, five bishops, and one priest. That was exactly the number that they gave us for our delegation. (laughs) But because we were able to encourage and receive a good number of little ones, families, including five kids in a number of cases, we have about 22 kids joining us, ranging in age from 10 months, which is mine, (laughs) to uh, (laughs) 17. And then we have four young adults between the ages of 18 and 22, and then the adults and a few couples without children. But all told, with bishops and clergy, we have 60 participants. Okay. Yeah, I don't think Rome specified the number of kids they No. <laughs> okay. Right. So we did stress and we did, you know, encourage families, if they could make it, to bring their entire troop. So one family actually has six kids that they're bringing. And that, that's cool that there will actually be, like, whole families there. Because I remember when this was being discussed initially that it had been delayed to the, due to the pandemic. And when they were going to eventually have it, it wasn't going to have people there. It was going to be a reduced thing. Then it didn't really seem like it was going to be a real meeting of families. But since they loosened it up, that's going to be nice. Exactly. And they are going to be providing a children's track, which is a pretty customary for the World Meeting of Families to have this kind of children's section so that while the parents are engaged in the Congress part of the event, which normally 
is the start off of the event. It's the first three days, typically two or three days. They have a children's track as well. And hopefully our young adults who participate either listen in at the Congress or partake in some excursions around the city. I mean, sure. why not, right? When in Rome? Yeah. <laughs> when in Rome, do as the American tourists do. <laughs> okay, so some of our listeners might be like me, that they're relatively new to the idea of a world meeting of families, which is something that Pope John Paul II started in the 90s. Why did he call for a world meeting of families to begin with? Right. Well, John Paul II, as we know, had a tender place in his heart for families in general, recognizing that they are the cell of society. It got started in 1994, to be exact, and that year was actually being celebrated as the International Year of the Family, designated by the United Nations. So it may have been the catalyst for which John Paul II determined that, you know, as a church, we should also be promoting our families, so let's start the World Meeting of Families. And so since 1994, it has been held every three years and in different places around the world. So the first one was held in Rome, and so was the third, actually, because it was the Jubilee year of 2000. 2000. Mm -hmm. So they had the third World Meeting of Families then in Rome, and now we're going back to Rome again. And this year, it's the 10th World Meeting. So there have been just about every three years, there has been a World Meeting. And so I would presume that, you know, John Paul II, if you take a look at Familiar's Consortio and some of his other writings on family, he just wanted to provide an opportunity to the church internationally worldwide, you know, to gather together, to encourage, to inspire, and to uphold the family, recognizing its importance in society and in the church. Yeah, and it sort of seems like it's part of a larger set of events that he did on a global scale. I'm thinking of like World Youth Day or some of the ecumenical gatherings that he did, like the one in Assisi. You know, it it sort of seems like that, but specifically focused on families. Right. And there are components of it that make it feel somewhat like a World Youth Day, but obviously it's on a different scale. World Youth Day is humongous. (laughs) Right. Typically, yes. It also, because it caters to, you know, youth, it's just, you know, young people are more nimble. They're just able to, you know, pack their bags more easily than an entire family, you know, especially you know, with five, six, seven kids or whatever. So um, it also just makes it more financially feasible to to gather in an international location. But the world meeting of families is, it's a tremendous opportunity to gather as a church and, and recognize the importance of the domestic church, which is going to be spoken of at this Congress. Okay. And so during the actual meeting, what does that consist of for, primarily for the adults? Right. So for the adults, there are First, a couple days of the Congress, they call it, and that's primarily like a conference-type setting. Now, given that this year everyone will be in the same place, think a big convention center, basically, which is like the auditorium at the Vatican City, they will all be listening to the same panels together, whereas in the past you were able to break out into the different, you know, you could choose from different tracks Oh, really? We're going to have all sorts of different languages that everyone's going to be in the same... Everyone is going to be in the same room, basically, this time, and they'll, they will have simultaneous translation in a number of languages. So it's going to feel quite a bit different from past. My last experience was in Dublin, and there, I think whenever you're in Europe, you have to consider that they don't have the big, you know, Marriott convention centers or, yeah, right. you know, the big Hilton, you know, meeting places that we do here in the United States. So the whole system we have in the U.S. of convention centers doesn't exist around the world like it does here. So in Dublin, they, it was entirely outdoors. It was at this big, like, park that they had in, in Dublin. And you met in, like, their outdoor stadium or their meeting places that were somewhat indoors. 
but like partially sheltered. So it was definitely, it was interesting because when it rained, it was like, you felt like you were outdoors under the rain. Um, A little more exposed, um, but it was interesting. It was like almost like fairgrounds, but this time it will be in one big auditorium, everyone together, probably with the exception of the children. (laughs) And so we will be listening to everything at the same time. And so that's how the world meeting begins with these like conferences. And they have a few panels prepared of international speakers. So once the World Meeting of Families is over, what are you hoping that our delegation is going to bring back to the church in the U.S.? For our listeners, in case they're unaware, we have recently produced from USCCB a national pastoral framework for marriage and family life ministry. And its title is Called to the Joy of Love. This was approved by the bishops at their National Assembly June of 2021. And so we're already coming on one year. But this national pastoral framework is going to guide our reflections. And I hope that it's kind of the lens through which all of our delegates absorb the content of the Congress. So what I've asked our delegates to do is this. I've asked them to take the framework and review it ahead of the event so that they can go prepared to really listen to everything through the lens of this framework and provide us, meaning myself and the U.S. bishops, with some concrete proposals based on what we've heard at the World Meeting of Families and based on what the framework already proposes so that so that we can really bring about some concrete actions or at least some idea of what we could propose as a church in order to better accompany our marriages and families based on what we hear at the World Meeting of Families. Also, I don't want this event to just be something that is participatory only. I really, I feel like sometimes these events can just kind of begin and end. That's what I was know? thinking. Like, what, what what's the fruit going to be right, after we fruit, get back? Right, yeah. exactly. That's always my big question too. Like, okay, even attending a conference, for example, you know, there are so many conferences that we might attend for whatever reason. There are always conferences here in the US. <laughs> but when you go, you can be psyched to be there, you know, kind of pumped by the atmosphere seeing lots of people who are like-minded or who share the same interests, you know, and the things. And you might learn a lot, but then sometimes I come back with my binder of notes or my, you know, all of the swag in the swag bag and and I just toss them in a corner and and like, because I got to get back to like my ordinary life and my to-do list. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I got to wash dishes. <laughs> like I'm not cracking open that swag bag or the binder again. That's too, it's too much to digest right now. Right, right. Yeah. And you do have to let like the content of these conventions and things kind of like settle and like, you know, you got to sift through it. It's a lot. It's, they tend to be intense, right? Yeah. But oftentimes I've asked myself, like, what am I, like, what kind of fruit is really coming from this for myself and also for the ministry? So I'd really like to make this a fruitful opportunity, especially since I also want our delegation to recognize kind of the responsibility of being part of the delegation because they are being sent on behalf of the bishops. So I've asked them to do a little bit of homework and that's basically what it is. I think that's probably going to help you know, reinforce what we get from the World Meeting of Families because we're not coming back with this big binder. We're going there with, it's it's not even a big binder. It's a pretty small book, but having called to the joy of love in advance, knowing that we want it to have some concrete fruits after we get back. We want ministry to couples and to families to actually look different as a consequence of that document in addition to the World Meeting Families, I think it's going to make it a lot easier for the meeting to actually bear some fruit and not just <laughs> fade away during the long flight back. Hmm. Right, exactly. I think that this is a good way to at least maintain a certain intentionality around the participation. 
you know, also on behalf of our delegates. So we'll see. So I have, they don't know this yet. Well, I did, I did let them know that I was going to do this. They just don't know what it is precisely. But I did say, be prepared to meet together. Fortunately, we're all staying in the same place. So I said, be prepared to meet together to talk about like what this will look like. And we might have eventually, you know, uh, some kind of session at the end, concluding session to just talk about, reflect together and just share some of our, you know, reflections on the content. And to that effect, I'm also providing a pilgrim guide so that they have paper and pen ready to go (laughs) to jot down their notes and reflections based on the framework. Okay, so speaking of the pastoral framework, before that came out last year, what was that intended to address in the Church of the U.S.? This was a work in progress for many years ahead of its production, as all things in the church, right? It does take a, a bit of time. And I think you you know how many years. <laughs> yeah. How many years in reviews and revisions yeah. and, <laughs> and drafts. But the primary catalyst was probably the synod around the families, on the families. And then the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, by Pope Francis, was a subsequent, you know, catalyst. But really, the U.S. was ready for an updated pastoral framework. And actually, this is somewhat of a supplement to a marriage, a love and life in the divine plan, which was a great, more of a catechetical resource produced by us. A few years back. Which was 2009, I think, right? Correct. We definitely didn't have to look that up. (laughs) But anyway, like you were saying, that was more of a catechetical document and not so much a document about pastoral ministry properly. Exactly. So one of the purposes of this pastoral framework was to ensure that that particular document had more of a pastoral component to it and actually spoke to the real needs of the church today in the United States. And so we address some of those. We talk about the challenges that families and married couples face in the in the church today and in the United States context. And so really this pastoral framework suggests multiple ways to address those challenges in pastoral ways. And originally we talked about a pastoral plan, but ultimately the word framework was used because we're encouraging every diocese to take this into hand and consider this as a first template of sorts. So that they can make their own plan. Exactly, exactly. So that they, right, because every diocese is different here in the United States, right? So they need to really uh, utilize this as kind of just uh, a springboard from which to create their own plan around marriages and families based on their local needs. An example of that would be the bishops talk at certain points in the framework about ministry with families who have a migrant background, for instance, and that's going to be a reality for some dioceses way more than for others. So is that an example of like why it's not a concrete plan so much as a framework that is there for those dioceses that need to have a plan? Absolutely. And some dioceses, to give them credit, upon the release of Amoris Laetitia, they were already creating pastoral plans around that. And that was great. So they were well ahead of us, really, in producing the pastoral framework. Now they can take it and kind of review their pastoral plan in the light of this. And there were a few dioceses that had taken the opportunity of Amoris Laetitia to already solidify a pastoral plan. Others maybe hadn't given it any thought yet. And right now, many dioceses are taking this as an opportunity to just review, generally speaking, how they connect marriage and family life with their multiple other ministries. Where are the areas of connection? There's really marriage and family life overlaps with almost everything that you do, 
right? Whether that's Catholic charities or intercultural ministries, youth and young adults, you know, everything really that a church, that a diocese or parish offers is connected in some way to marriage and family life ministry. Another example of this has to do with what we just talked about in a previous episode about supporting women and families in crisis who are expecting children and not really sure where to turn. And the, the pastoral framework, Call to the Joy of Love, does address that specific family situation as well when it comes to what it calls supporting married couples and welcoming new life, which can help dioceses bolster their ministry in this area. Because I know we've seen in the Walking with Moms in Need initiative that the USCCB is also doing, that it's much more needed in some places than in others. And it seems like that this is exactly what the pastoral framework is calling for. Absolutely. We have a section that's called Supporting Married Couples and Welcoming New Life. And we're just asking dioceses and parishes to recognize, similar to this other initiative, Walking with Moms in Need, we're asking them to recognize where they could do better to accompany these families, these couples, encourage them to welcome new life because it's it's not easy, you know, to just be open to that gift of children sometimes. Depending, again, everything is very, you know, it depends also on the diocese, you know. New York City might have, you know, more issues with this than, I don't know, Madison, Wisconsin. I, just to give a throw out an example, because everything is really based on the local needs. How easy do you think it's going to be to tie in the content of the pastoral framework with what they end up talking about at the actual world meeting of families? Yeah, actually, I don't think it will be difficult at all because I was just reviewing the program for the Congress. And for example, the first day kicks off with our very own U.S. delegates, Gregory and Lisa Popcheck. They're talking on the domestic church and synodality. And everything following that, panel one, two, and three, and four, tie in almost perfectly with what we talk about in the, in the framework. We talk about family love and difficulty, which is the big part in accompaniment, which is the heart of our framework. We talk about accompanying fatherhood and motherhood, which goes back to what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And under this panel, there's also a sub-panel, I guess you could call it, that is called Accepting New Life, Always Accepting New Life. Um, an Italian couple will be speaking on that. So really, as I was going through the program and comparing it to the framework for our reflection questions for the delegates, it occurred to me that there's so much crossover here, which is a good sign. It means that we're on the same page, and I think it will make our job easier when we come back to the U.S. refreshed and having heard everything that these international delegates have shared with us during the days of the Congress. So I think there's a lot here that we will be working with, and I'm looking forward to it. Nice. I'm glad to see that's all tying together. And it's not just tying together with the World Meeting of Families. The pop checks were on this podcast last year. Um, So yeah, it'll be good to catch up with them in a couple weeks. Well, I think we can leave it there. Next time you hear from us, we'll be in Rome. So until then, Julia, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Arrivederci a Roma. Suicide? You must feel like a big city cop again, huh, Chief? Well, I mostly dealt with strangers back then. Benny was my friend. And we are back. Kara Bach, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Today we are talking about Stranger Things. Spoilers for Season 4, Volume 1 of Stranger Things, which just dropped at the end of May. We have not yet seen, obviously, Season 4, Volume 2, which is yet to come out on July 1st, 2022. So we'll be talking about the entire three-plus seasons of Stranger Things, which 
if listeners aren't familiar with Stranger Things, if they don't remember the cultural phenomenon from a few years ago that is making a comeback. Stranger Things is a show set in the 1980s about a group of kids, very influenced by E.T., which we talked about last episode, other Steven Spielberg-like fantasy and sci-fi movies, Stephen King horror novels, and a little bit of government conspiracy movies from the 70s as well. And the way the show kicks off in season one is that a government agency masquerading as the Department of Energy experiments on kids in the successor of the MK Ultra program to get them to develop superpowers. One kid who is named Eleven in the program develops telekinetic powers that rips open a hole to another dimension called the Upside Down, where a neighborhood kid, Will, gets abducted by a monster called the Deborah Gorgon, and his friends, along with Will's mother and older brother, have to save him with Eleven's help. Kara, is that a pretty good synopsis of uh, the beginning of season one? That's definitely how it kicks off, and okay. it only gets weirder from there. <laughs> it gets a lot weirder from there. And in spite of it being largely about kids, it's primarily for people who are nostalgic about the 80s. So it's not entirely aimed at kids, and a lot of the content, fair warning, can be more mature. There's definitely some horror elements earlier on that become more and more violent as the show has progressed, and especially in season four. So that's not something we're necessarily endorsing. The show is not good because it's violent, but the show is good for other reasons that we'll hopefully talk about. Um, and the show also, I think, especially later on, endorses unchaste activity in, in like contrast to season one, where they strongly suggest that a character having premarital sex caused her best friend to die in another, in a totally <laughs> other place. That was a stretch, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was really glad for that callback, you know, a little justice for Barb. Justice for Barb. Head tip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny, now that we're, you know, four seasons in, you've spent a lot of time with these characters. I mean, you're saying all the, you know, things that we're not endorsing. I think the reason why we are talking about this show, though, is that it has so many elements of just human care and like relationships. So I say on the one hand, you've got this core group of friends, which are these four boys, which then get layered in a, a girl who moves uh, from California in season two, Max. But the core four characters, Will, Dustin, Lucas, and Mike are, you know, best friends and they're nerds. And, you know, it starts off that they're, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement. And you might think that like this is about fantasy or it's about monsters but really this is about friendship and about family and the things that you do for the people who you love yeah we just wanted to find our friend friend yeah friend will what is friend is she serious um a friend is, is someone, someone that you do anything for you lend them your cool stuff, like comic books and trading cards. And they never break a promise. Especially when they're spit. Spit? A spit swear means you never break your word. It's a bond. Yeah, the friendships sort of fill the void left by broken 1980s families, I think. is is That's especially something the show wanted to, wanted to emphasize early on, because they sort of indicate that the catalyst for all of the action that happens in season one is a broken family. Will goes missing because he comes home late at night chased by this creature from another dimension, the Demogorgon. And nobody's home on a school night, even though he ostensibly has a mom, a dad, and an older brother. And the reason nobody's home is because 
Dad has abandoned the family. Mom is working late to support the family. And so is the older brother. Mm-hmm. So this, what, I don't know, 10, 11-year-old kid is basically home alone at like 9 o'clock on a school night. And if somebody else had been around, he wouldn't have been alone. And that's how the Demogorgon, the monster, preys on people. It picks off people who are by themselves. Um, so the kid goes missing. Spoilers, he'll be fine eventually. It was a rough road back, but he gets back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so it is caused by a broken family. And you see this with other characters too. Of the main four friends, only one of them have parents who have a seemingly healthy marriage. Dustin, we never see his dad. Lucas's mother and father seem to get along perfectly fine. Mike's parents are also stably married in sort of the idealized, like, suburban nuclear family. But they hint somewhat regularly that they don't get along very well and that they're not really in love. Mike's mother married Mike's father for the stability. And Mike's father is not exactly the most sacrificial, serving kind of... He's not loving his wife as Christ loves the church. (laughs) He's just... And you you see this come out when Eleven, the runaway experiment kid, is staying at Mike's house and he's showing her around the house there in the living room and he says, "That's this is our lazy boy chair. That's where my dad sleeps. And he just moves on like it's normal. And you have to take a step back and say, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Maybe every once in a while, but every night. Although that's also sort of like a very kid thing to do. Be like, oh, my dad sleeps on the chair. It's like, okay, maybe your dad does go to bed eventually. <laughs> And they also, in the sort of premarital sex subplot in season one, the mother who has this sort of unhappy marriage, her daughter is the one who is drawn into a relationship with this high school boy, Steve, who at that point does not really care about her at all. And the mother can see her daughter retracing the steps and the mistakes that she herself made when she was that age. And she tries and is unable to have this conversation, this heart to heart with her daughter. It's sort of how this unhappy marriage came about, because once upon a time, her husband was Steve, and she was in her daughter's shoes. So that I thought was a pretty sensitive treatment of the issue, which I think the show has sort of gotten away from a little bit as it sort of just wanted to revel in couples, I guess, characters getting together and falling in love. Mm. Although I I never really got the sense... I guess I didn't rewatch the first three seasons recently, so you can correct me. But my memory is that, you know, Lucas and Max, who's the new friend who comes in season two, and then Dustin meets his Mormon girlfriend at computer camp over the summer. (laughs) (laughs) They're both very innocent, which is Mm. something that I appreciated. It wasn't trying to, like, hypersexualize it. And if anything, I feel like... yes. Yeah, the Nancy and Steve relationship at the beginning of season one is sort of typical for like that late high school. Like he's a cool kid and she was kind of a nerd. And but now she's getting popular. Yeah, now she's like gets to date the, the hot guy. And like that just felt very genuine to me of that kind of relationship. And then the fact yeah. that the, the nerdy kids who they're younger, two are <laughs> in middle school, they have these like really sweet, innocent relationships and it's kind of like the first buddings of innocent love and even Al and Mike in season two and three and Hopper basically like yelling at them for kissing in the bedroom it's like it's still pretty innocent stuff yeah I don't know like a good midwestern dad would be like yes of course you're gonna leave that door open (laughs) and as a you know born and bred midwesterner I identify with this (laughs) (laughs) 
it's funny because like three of the four main kids do develop relationships while they're still in middle school. And the relationship between Mike and Eleven is very sweet. I think the one, the relationship that is a later high school relationship between the daughter Nancy again, but with another boy, less popular boy, Jonathan, Will's older brother, the older brother of the kid that goes missing. That one is not chased and the show is on board with it. And that's the one Mm. where I'm like, can we not throw these kids into bed with each other? Can we... Or if we're going to, let's make it a bad thing in the story. Yeah. I'd actually forgotten about them as a couple. Yeah. Because huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I guess they were always a better, they were a better match than uh, Steve and Nancy. Although I, I appreciate that in season four, Steve, Steve for a while there was like drifting into like weird nerd kind of culture and now, or at least like sort of post high school loser yeah, territory. Yeah, yeah. At least they like have sort of brought him backwards. Like, okay, no, Steve is actually like a honk. Girls really like him. He's got some some mojo. <laughs> and he's had some character like some moral growth yeah. in the meantime. Yeah. yeah. By by virtue of his repeated instances of having to babysit the middle school kids through multiple crises. Like, he's still a little bit of an idiot. At least he's yeah. he's not. Or they're, like, just bringing back some of the, like, oh, yeah, that's right. Steve was, like, an attractive guy. I feel yeah. like they've kind of brought back part of his old character. And he's very, he's very endearing. I really enjoy Steve. <laughs> so with Will's broken family, it's interesting how they're introduced and then how they're developed, which I think is a real strength. I didn't really remember this too much until I went back and rewatched this before season four. But when they first introduced Will's mother, Joyce, she looks like she's a complete mess. Her older son, Jonathan, is cooking breakfast for her and before they find out the younger brother's missing, also for the younger brother. And she's like blaming her older son for not watching the younger brother while the older brother's cooking breakfast. She seems like she's shifting responsibility for caring for the family. But... As the season goes on, you find out that A, she's doing everything she can because her husband left her. And she sticks out these ridiculous challenges that would be petrifying to me if I were a parent. Like her son going missing or she eventually finds out why that it was taken by a literal monster from another dimension. And she becomes this indefatigable mother who like is willing to brave any danger no matter how ridiculous to get her son back up to and including like entering this extremely hazardous toxic other dimension to pull him out of this vine prison so yeah joyce huge turnaround i feel like like she needs to prove herself to herself and even though this is a very weird stressful thing to go through in a way it's not just like oh there's like personal growth through adversity it was a real reckoning for her of like i am a good mom i am going to go after my son and kind of validating to herself that she's not a mess i mean joyce is still a little bit of a mess but (laughs) she's more just like a almost like a ditz but i feel like it's a it is interesting as the seasons have gone on just like her own confidence in herself has grown yeah. As a result of like proving to herself that she can do it. Yeah, which is really neat. Winona Ryder does a great job playing that character too. Oh yeah, she's she's wonderful. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the broken families too because I had sort of forgotten until this season four about Hopper originally being like a drunk and a big mess himself and that like his yeah. wife had left him and like he had a daughter who died and, you know, he has his like his own sort of familial baggage. Yeah. And a lot of that, he ha- eventually 
becomes sort of a surrogate father to Eleven, or L, and he is responsible for taking care of her after she's, like, escaped the lab. And that's when his past experience as a father of a kid who died of an illness, who died of cancer, I think, gets brought out. He doesn't even tell her that he had a daughter until after they've been living together for a year. And only because they get closer because of the new crisis in season two, which is also handled very sensitively. I also I appreciate that there seems to be a respect for dads in here. At least, you know, the fact that the dad has left in sort of multiple of the families is not seen yeah. as like a no big deal thing. It's like, yeah, this is like a real burden for these kids. And Hopper, like, wanting to be a good dad is an important thing to him. Yeah. And obviously, like, Elle's relationship with Hopper is also really important to her. And that comes up at the beginning of this season that, like, he was a true father for her. And that was really healing, especially because she had, you know, quote unquote, Papa, her. Oh, gosh. The creepy sort of lab runner. Yeah, the head of the lab is addressed by her, Eleven, and the other kids in the program as Papa, even though he's not their father at all, and in fact separated these kids from their parents by force. So the girl that joins the friend group in season two, her name is Max, and she comes from a a real broken family where her mother has gotten together with another guy who is not her father. So Max now has a stepfather and a stepbrother, both of whom are at least verbally abusive. And the stepfather abuses the stepbrother physically as well. And so Max is coming at all this and eventually finds refuge in the friend group, right? I can't remember. How did they all become friends again? Is it just like they see her with a skateboard or something? <laughs> it's part. It's pretty much that. Like she's good at arcade games and Lucas and Dustin both get crushes on her. Eventually she picks Lucas and Dustin is sitting at the like junior prom or whatever. Like all alone while all the, the other kids are dancing. Oh. Yeah. I don't remember that much about Max and her family until, you know, season four, basically the stepfather has left them. And so it's just her and her mom. And in the meantime, her abusive older brother has been killed by another monster in season three. So she's also grappling with that. She's mourning him, but also she had a bad relationship with him. That's like the basis of season four. Obviously, spoiler alerts is is the sort of opening up of these deep wounds, leaving these kids. And it's not, she's not the one who you kind of start off with. There's two other characters who are targeted early on. New characters to season four, right? Yeah, yeah. New, briefly alive characters (laughs) in season four. But they're targeted specifically for having some kind of wound and one of them is not necessarily familial but several of the other victims it is you know these wounds that are from specifically from their parents or from their families that have opened them up to be attacked by the monster of the season and what makes them so susceptible to attack is that these wounds are unaddressed Mm. they're sort of spreading in, in the interior lives of these people so that when the monster in season four Vecna shows up, they're enthralled by it because they haven't dealt with the existing not supernatural trauma that's in their past. Max, when she is in the thrall of this monster Vecna and she is heading down the path that caused the other two before her to die because of their unaddressed trauma, she kind of knows what's coming, but she's still falling into the thrall of this thing. And her friends 
who are still around and still care about her, have figured out that music helps people escape this particular hallucination. And so the, they have to figure out what her favorite song is, and her ex-boyfriend who still cares about her knows what her favorite song is. It's Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. And so they play this song for her as she's like in the middle of a hallucination to pull her out of it. And it's like the best scene in the entire season. And the lyrics of that song, it's, it's an interesting song. I don't think I've ever, I'd ever heard it before the show. But here's, here's a little bit of the song. And if I only could, I'd make a deal with God. And I'd get him to swap our places. Be running up that road. Be running up that hill. Be running up that building. Say, if I only could. You, it's you and me. It's you and me won't be unhappy. There's a lot there about sacrificial love for the other person that is specific indirect relationship with God, which I think is fascinating to bring into this ostensibly secular show. Well, I'm glad you pointed out the lyrics because I actually hadn't looked them up, but that's also reminds me a lot of her relationship with Billy and like her sort of trauma in this at the start of this of the season is that, you know, she feels like this deep regret that Billy sacrificed himself to save all of them. Yeah. And it's sort of that like sacrificial love as a brother and then in, as a friend that seems to be echoed there. Yeah, exactly. Right before that scene, she visits the gravesite of her brother and like talks to him about that and works through like these very complicated feelings of having been verbally abused by him, having been mistreated by him, but at the same time knowing that he at the in the end sacrificed his life to help save her. And so her like wrestling with those seemingly contrary, no, those contrary facts in his life, trying to love her stepbrother through that. They kind of keep bringing up these themes of things that were common in the 80s. And it does feel a little bit like an indictment of the sort of family situations that were becoming more prevalent in the 80s and kind of, I don't know what the Duffer brothers' own background is, but it certainly seems to be pointing to fraught family relationships as a deep source of pain and woundedness for kids in that era. Yeah. And maybe maybe woundedness that culturally was not noticed, right? Because like, especially when no-fault divorce became more prominent, the assumption was, ah, the kids will be fine, they're resilient. And it wasn't until later that the effects of divorce on kids became more apparent. And I think a similar sort of thing is going on here, although in a very heavily dramatized and fantastical way, <laughs> to be sure. And to its credit, you know, I think good art and good drama aren't like always hitting you in the face with the point that they're trying to make. Yeah. But I think that the show walks an interesting line between presenting things just, at least as the writer's see them as they were as like a representation of the 80s and then also like making a point about them because i think we were talking before we were recording about you know the fact that they play D D, and he doesn't they don't really seem to be saying much about it other than the fact that like nerds in the 80s played D. <laughs> you know like my yeah. i had my oldest brother was like oh yeah my friends and i all play D D, and like you know he went on to become an electrical engineer and like <laughs> they were definitely nerds so i feel like there's a lot in this show where it's like oh yeah the point is like they're nerds and like nerds would play D D, and they were probably into computers and electronics and you know all these kind of things that go along with like not being the cool kid in the 80s that doesn't feel like it's necessarily trying to make a point other than the fact that like yeah these kids are nerds and that's who our heroes are and then in season four 
it takes on a different tone where they deal with the satanic panic mm-hmm. element that develops in kind of response to Dungeons and Dragons, which in real life, it's sort of unclear uh, how much of a satanic element there was or is in Dungeons and Dragons. And we're going to kind of steer clear of that because I don't know that much about Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know about you, Kara, maybe. Other than knowing that it was like a very popular game in the 80s. That's about the extent of my... But the way that it's presented in the show, the takeaway is supposed to be, well, the satanic panic uh, is very misguided because the kids don't think that Dungeons and Dragons is real. But I think they're doing something interesting. It looks at first glance like they are just... Just criticizing religious elements in society and the show is saying let the kids be kids i think there's more going on though so what dungeons and dragons does in the plot of the show is it gives gives the kids a vocabulary to understand the monsters that come in from this other dimension um, and so they they name these monsters after monsters in dungeons and dragons like the demogorgon the mind flayer and vecna Dungeons and Dragons prepares the kids for real life, but it's not like it wins them over to to worship the monsters or anything. It also seems like what you just said, like they're using it as like a parallel because, I mean, for major spoiler, if you haven't seen all of season four, but in the end, the who they're calling Vecna is not from this other world. And he's, you know, it's not like he was a... D&D player and got subsumed into the upside down, he was actually one of the kids, quote unquote kids, in the same lab as Eleven. And then- He was the first one. Oh yeah, he's number one. He's He's one, yeah. It's just, I think that they do a nice job of not trying to say that like, this show is about Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, something like that. It's like a language, but they have their own mythology in this show and- even though they're like lifting terminology, that's not what it's about. Yeah. So, okay, Kara, this is the that segment again where I'm gonna I'm gonna th- read into what I want the show to mean, and you tell me whether or not you think it's actually <laughs> <laughs> it's actually based. And you over theologizing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the satanic panic plotline. You think it's going to be very critical of religion in American society because like at one point they enter a church and this one popular kid is saying, we all got to, all these, these murders that have been happening are the fault of the kid. This older kid who's running the Dungeons and Dragons group, Eddie, the the Satanist, and we got to go after him and we got to form a posse basically. And you think the show is saying, well, these religious zealots are wrong. Satanic panic was never a real thing. However... There is a real demon in the show. It's just not where they think it is. Vecna is a human who's using sort of demonic powers, but he is the servant of the main big bad of the show, the Mind Flayer, which is really a monster from this other dimension. For all intents and purposes, it's a demon. So it's just not where the townsfolk in Indiana think it is. So D&D, you know, like we were saying earlier, is helping kids understand what's going on here, albeit obliquely. And it reminded me, Kara, of something that G.K. Chesterton talks about in a chapter called The Red Angel in a set of essays called uh, What's Wrong with the World. So here's a quote for you. Fairy tales, then, are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. 
The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. And I think that's what that's what the kids' broader fascination with fantasy stories. And they mention Lord of the Rings multiple times as well. By the end of this current season, they're talking about Mordor and the Shire. And another thing about Dungeons and Dragons, it was based on Lord of the Rings, which, as J.R.R. Tolkien said, is a fundamentally Catholic and religious work. Now, I think D&D is based on plenty of other things that are not necessarily Catholic or even cohesive with Catholicism. But they are receiving some bits and pieces of good and evil, of working together in a sort of fantasy setting to learn about evil. And another way these kids approach problems, yes, they learn about it from a fantasy setting, but the methods they employ are not fantasy-based. It's not like they go out and they learn magic spells, because if they did that, maybe there would be something to the satanic panic. Instead, they use what they learn in science class. They do a lot of, like, science projects. They learn that they can find the gates to solve the problems by finding the, the distortions in the magnetic field through compasses. So as soon as they learn that the the fantasy elements are real, they don't want to join it. They want to defeat it. And the way they defeat it is by using science. So they combine their knowledge of science and fantasy together, sort of analogously, to me anyway, to how we use faith and reason together. And we don't veer into the extreme of either one to the expense of the other. And I think it's really telling that the show has a scene critical of a generically mainline Protestant community and also a Mormon community. And it would be so easy for them to add just one more scene of some backwards Catholic priest joining in the satanic panic, but they don't. And I think it's because there's some underlying sympathy towards Catholicism, which has also been accused of being demonic by some Protestant communities in the past. And where this really jumped out, Kara, is when Hopper in the Russian prison camp is talking about prayer. Because that came out of nowhere, unless you think the show is actually trying to be positive about some variety of Christianity. Couple that with when the adults are stuck in Russia, the safe house where all the contraband American goods is an Orthodox church. There's lots of back here. (laughs) What I'm saying is Stranger Things is a secret Catholic show. Far from perfect to be sure, but that's what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to have a hard pass on that one, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think your your point about I don't know, it seems I I don't think it's being crypto-catholic, but <laughs> I do think you're right that it's at least amenable to the idea that there's things beyond our worlds and that that is not necessarily a bad thing. They don't seem she doesn't seem to be like critical of faith. And actually, you're, it's so funny you mentioned about the character at the like sort of town hall meeting. Cause we were like, oh man, this is like a revivalist preacher moment with like the basketball guy. I was like, oh, he's definitely like on his way to becoming a preacher. He's, yeah. you know, really firing up the crowd in that way. Cause he like quotes the letter to the Romans at one point. Yeah. It's just, I'm not entirely sure that it feels like another one of those things to me where like the show doesn't have a clear viewpoint, but it seems to be amenable to the idea of the other things exist and like yes we we live in a fantasy show in this case so we know that this other dimension exists but in our sort of parallel real worlds that should make us open to the idea of 
things beyond our immediate knowledge, even yeah. though we're very pro-science here. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're totally, we're pro-science. And I mean, in the show, like most of the, the quote unquote supernatural isn't really supernatural. It's just, you know, paranormal and bad. <laughs> so like, but at the same time, I'm not going to be surprised if there's an exorcism scene coming up at some point in the future. <laughs> we'll circle back on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we, we might probably come back and do the second half of season four once it comes out in July. But in the in the meantime, we have sufficiently spoiled the first four seasons. So I think we can probably leave it there for now. And I'll be looking for more clues that I can distort into crypto-Catholicism. <laughs> well, I think we can let the natural course of this episode tear us apart. Until next time. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.